1865, the Freedmen's Bank was written into law by President Lincoln to help newly freed enslaved people save money and buy land. At its height, African Americans had deposited about $50 million, which is about a trillion dollars today. But less than 10 years after the bank was established, it collapsed, throwing many Black Americans into financial ruin. I think that this is encoded in the DNA of African-American communities. There's a reason why African-Americans in the period after the bank closed and even into the 20th century really retreated from engaging in the formal financial services industry. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the rise and fall of the Freedmen's Bank and later, how lawmakers used literacy tests to suppress African-American voters during Jim Crow. But first, Justine Hill Edwards studies African-American economic history. She says the racial wealth gap can be traced back to the rise and fall of the Freedmen's Bank. Justine is a history professor at the University of Virginia and author of the forthcoming book, The Freedmen's Bank, an untold history of economic triumph and tragedy in Reconstruction America. So the Freedmen's Bank was founded by a group of missionaries, bankers, and philanthropists, mostly from New York and Massachusetts. And one man in particular, a minister from New Jersey named John Alvord, he had been traveling around with the Union Army in 1864, and he had the opportunity to talk to recently emancipated African Americans. And he asked them what they wanted most in this transition from slavery to freedom. And one of the the things that they said was land. And so John Alvord came up with the idea of creating a savings bank just for recently emancipated slaves to help them with this goal of buying land for themselves to kind of start themselves off on this journey from slavery to freedom. Would there have been an attitude at this time by the financial industry that formerly enslaved people don't even know how to use a banking system. Sure, there there was a bit of that. Um, but recently emancipated African Americans were seen as kind of a target-rich population. They had just emerged from slavery. They wanted to buy land. They wanted to cultivate goods on that land for sale in the market. And so bankers increasingly started to not respect the kind of economic knowledge that the formerly enslaved were bringing with them into to freedom, but really understanding that they could be used as a way to to kind of profit in terms of uh, kind of bringing them into the formal banking system. How hard was it to notify newly freed African-Americans that, hey, this bank is there, trust it, it's there for you, start saving? So the bank was actually very successful in advertising the Freedmen's Bank. The advertising campaign included the bank advertising in black newspapers, sending John Alvord, who worked both for the bank and for the Freedmen's Bureau, on like a traveling tour of the the South to talk to recently freed African-Americans, encouraging them to kind of trust the bankers who had their best interests in mind. And so in many ways, the bank was very successful in getting the, the word out that there was a bank that they could store and save their money in to kind of get what was then the, the American dream, which was land ownership. There was even an advertising phrase what was that? Uh, Save the small sums, which is so funny. These advertisements were not just compelling, they were a bit paternalistic as well. Freedmen's Bank officials were telling freed people that they should eschew liquor and tobacco and save whatever money they they could and put it in these bank accounts. And so it was founded in 1865. By 1870, by 1872, there were 37 branches in 17 states, from New York to Florida, from the Carolinas and Georgia to Texas. And so the bank was actually fairly popular during the period of Reconstruction. And people were pouring their money in. They were 
pouring their their money in. And so in the the first year, the bank accepted around $300,000 in deposits. By 1870 and 1872, the bank had accepted about $57 million in deposits, which is just stunning. It's outstanding. And that $57 million back then would have been roughly, what, a trillion now? A little over a trillion dollars now, which is, again, staggering. And was it seen by the American capitalist society as a staggering success? Well, it was. And so as the bank grew, as Black depositors put more and more money in the the accounts, white bankers, especially in cities like New York and Philadelphia, even in Washington, D.C., started to see just this pot of money sitting there. And so the bank became a target for bankers who saw the deposits being ripe for investments. And so uh, in 1868 and 1869, there was a shift that happened with the bank's board. So gone were the majority of the trustees who were more philanthropic in their their goals, and they were replaced by bankers. So basically, the trustees decide, let's start making loans. Yes. That won't go bad. (laughs) And so what happens is that as the board of trustees started to shift, as more bankers started to accept positions on the bank's board, they started to entertain the idea of making loans. Now, interestingly enough, the bank's original charter did not allow for loans. The bank made its first loan illegally in April of 1867, And the loan went to one of the new trustees who became the bank's actuary. His name was D.L. Eaton. He ended up taking out this loan illegally, never paying it back. And that actually started what I would call the plunder of the bank. One of the guys who was a trustee was the founder of Howard University, General Howard. Yes. Who also either took out a loan or made a loan to relatives or friends. Yes. And so General O.O. Howard was a union general, and he had tight connections and relationships to many of the bank's administrators, namely John Alivord. They were personal friends. He ended up receiving a loan from the bank to help construct Howard University. A big one? About $50,000. And he actually secured a loan for one of his business partners who supplied the building materials for Howard. And so when we talk about the expansion of the bank's business, when we talk about the bank making loans, especially after 1870 when Congress approved the amendment of the bank's charter to allow the, the bank to legally make loans, we are talking about bank administrators and trustees making loans not only to the themselves, but to their business partners and friends. Were they bad loans? Because the tragic part of the story is that less than 10 years after the successful bank was created and grew and had earned the trust and savings of all these newly freed people, it collapsed. Yes, these loans were horrible, to be frank. The loans were supposed to be secured by property. Many of the the loans were not secured by property. Many of the loans were secured by railroad stock, which at this point was a risky investment. One of the biggest investors in the transcontinental railroad was Jay Cook, the brother of Henry Cook, who was on the bank's finance committee. And so we are talking about a tightly knit network of politicians, of bankers, all of whom were white, who were using the bank as essentially their ATM, taking black depositors' money to make risky investments. And so from there, we have a major financial panic in September of 1873. A national one. A national panic, national financial collapse. And there's a run on the banks. There is a run on the bank. And the bank's biggest debtor, the person who took out the biggest loan, a half million dollar loan from the bank, was none other than Jay Cook. And Jay Cook's investment bank collapsed in September of 1872, and that one event caused a run on his bank, caused a run on the Freedman's Bank, and he did not pay back his loans. How fast did the Freedman's Bank collapse? Uh, Less than, than a year after that. 
And so the bank underwent an examination in the spring of 1874 after the bank kind of booted its president, who at the time was John Alvord. Trustees believed that he wasn't doing his due diligence because essentially he had allowed the finance committee to make all of these risky, unprofitable loans. Congress initiated an examination, and they found that the bank's books were in utter disarray. And so in the midst of this kind of entire collapse, the bank decides to ask someone to assume the bank presidency, and they they hope that this person would reset the ship, and that person was Frederick Douglass. Douglass takes one look at the books and says, this is an utter disaster. Frederick Douglass is completely appalled by the state of the, the bank. And this is kind of surprising t- to him, too, because he had been such a champion of the bank. He had founded a black newspaper in Washington and had been running monthly ads for the bank. He had been really encouraging African-Americans to invest their, their money in the the bank. And so when he assumes the presidency in March of 1874, he is flabbergasted. He's shocked. He can't believe that there was such widespread malfeasance. And not even him, probably the most famous Black man in the world, could actually write this sinking ship. Did you come across any stories of what the impact was like for individual people, individual investors who'd lost their savings? Sure. So I think one of the most tragic stories, I think, is a man named Robert Smalls. He was from South Carolina, and he kind of rose to fame during the war for stealing a Confederate ship in 1862. And he gains kind of an official commendation. He gets a small monetary prize, and he wins his freedom. And so he opens a bank account in March of 1870. He ends up being one of the the first Black men elected to Congress from the state. He opens a bank account in 1870 with the hopes of purchasing property in South Carolina in Charleston and Buford for himself and his family. He subsequently loses all of his money in the Freedmen's Bank, and he proceeds to use his political position to try to negotiate on behalf of the depositors who could not withdraw their money before the bank closed in June of 1874, but to no avail. The best that he could do was get depositors 20 cents on the dollar for their deposits. But by and large, most depositors did not recoup their lost savings accounts. And how lasting do you think the the generational memory of this event was? Was it a blip Or was it lasting? I think that this is encoded in the DNA of African-American communities. There's a reason why African-Americans in the period after the bank closed and even into the 20th century really retreated from engaging in the formal financial services industry. They were forced to set up their own communal financial services communities. They were forced to create their own banks, their own joint stock companies, their own savings banks. They were forced to kind of look inside and not look to really white bankers to fulfill their economic needs. And I think that retreat from the formal financial services industry had lasting effects. When we talk about kind of ladders to wealth building, what we are talking about is having to engage with financial institutions having to engage with banks for credit. And if you can't do that, as we we all know, you can't do things like buy a home, you can't do things like buy a car, you can't do things like invest in property. And by and large, investing in homes and property is a ladder to the middle class. And so without that, African-Americans were kind of left without this ladder towards a more secure economic future. Justine, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Justine Hill Edwards is a history professor at the University of Virginia. She's the author of the forthcoming book, The Freedman's Bank, 
an untold story of economic triumph and tragedy in Reconstruction America. During Jim Crow, literacy tests at the voting booth disenfranchised many African Americans. Mark Boonshoft is a history professor at Virginia Military Institute and the author of Aristocratic Education and the Making of the American Republic. He says lawmakers passed these literacy tests at the same time they were denying African Americans access to education. Mark, why did education become a prerequisite to vote in America? When did that start? That's really an outgrowth of the American Revolution in a lot of ways. Following the revolution, one of the problems that Americans had to figure out was how to transition from, you know, living in a monarchical society into living in a republican society or a democratic one. That is to say that ordinary people were supposed to govern themselves. And in order to do that, you needed to be able to know something about government. And who was talking about that early on? Early on, I mean, this is in, these are the founders talking about this, Jefferson, less known figures like Benjamin Rush, George Washington during his presidency wanted to create a national university. There's all sorts of stuff like this. Uh, Many state constitutions that are written in the 1770s have provisions to provide for public education, although they don't really take root. That's interesting because there was not public education beforehand. Only minimally in New England, where it was essentially to make sure that Puritans could read the Bible and so they wouldn't be, as the phrase was, deluded by Satan. These were called old deluder Satan laws. So along comes the revolution, and the founders say, we've got to have national education. That's the plan. And then the reality is it's pretty hard to build that kind of institution at that scale. And this is also after a destructive war where the economy has tanked. And so there's just not really tax revenue to do it. But the assumption still remains that good citizenship requires widespread education in order to make people kind of capable to govern themselves. So for the early decades, what did we get? Academies, you write. Yes, academies. These are essentially privately run but often publicly subsidized and publicly chartered schools that serve a presumptive elite. They offer classical education, even things like dancing, fencing, and French, and just things that would-be elites would, would need to know, but not necessarily anything that would be of interest or would be accessible to ordinary folks. And one of the things you write is that in northern states after the revolution, education came to be seen as a prerequisite to expanded voting rights. Yeah. The big influx of removals of property qualifications are really the 1810s, 20s, and 30s. So what happens is as people get essentially fed up with the idea that only elites are getting access to education— There becomes kind of a political movement to finally institute those public schools that the founders had been thinking about 30, 40 years earlier. And once they do, an argument arises that, well, now that the people are getting educated, we can probably let them vote. And so it's in the same period that public schools become accessible to most white men for the first time that many states hold constitutional conventions at which they remove so-called property qualifications for the vote. These were basically requirements that you had to own a certain amount of usually landed property, but also personal property in order to qualify to vote for local, state, and federal elections. Take me back to what you were thinking about, about where do Jim Crow's and repressive restrictions on African Americans after the Civil War came from? This was the sort of surprising insight when I was doing a lot of my original research, which was what's well known among historians, at least, is that at the same time that the vote is expanded for white men, it is restricted for black men. So to use New York as an example, New York State had property qualifications from the revolution through 1821, but they applied equally to black and white men. It's in that same constitutional convention that the vote is opened to all white men, regardless of property, that the property qualification on black men is increased so high that almost none can vote after that point. And so I was wondering, you know, why that was. And one of the ordinary explanations is, well, democracy was racialized. Okay, fair enough. But how did they justify it was the question that I was asking. And that was also something that is a question to ask about Jim Crow, right? Of course, what they're going for in Jim Crow is to disenfranchise and disempower African-Americans who have just become free following the Civil War in the South. But the way they did it is through these facially race-neutral methods like, say, denying people access to education and then putting a literacy test on the vote and saying, so if you can't read, you can't vote. And then 
if you don't have a certain level of education, you can't vote. But of course, that's ridiculous if you don't actually have access to education. And so what I was trying to figure out is why, why is that the method that be becomes most popular in the Jim Crow South? And the answer I found was that, well, that had been tried before. It had basically been done before in the antebellum North. And you wanted to figure out how in the North had they justified denying the vote to African-American men? Yeah. And so what's critical is at the same time that the vote is being expanded for white men in the pre-Civil War North and it's being denied to black men in the pre-Civil War North, that's also the period when more and more enslaved people in the northern states are becoming free for the first time. So there's this critical inflection point that looks a lot like what happens in the South after the Civil War when four million people are, are all of a sudden freed. And what I was noticing was the same argument in the pre-Civil War North that said, okay, we've given education to ordinary white men and so we can trust them with the vote. They're saying, well, these recently freed African-American men, they're not educated and we're going to deny them the vote on that account. Now, they don't do it legally. They don't pass literacy tests, but they basically say we can't trust them to vote. They're not educated enough and so they pass race-conscious voting laws. Now, of course, at the same time, they're also deliberately denying access to the public schools to those recently freed African-Americans. And how did you see that filter down to the South? How did it go from denying African-American men the vote based on a lack of education and denying them the education in the North to the same sort of thing in the South after the Civil War? This is a really key point. The 15th Amendment was ratified after the Civil War, and it says that the right to vote cannot be taken away on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That's a kind of negative right. It doesn't say people have a right to vote. It says you can't take away the sort of privilege of voting on these categories, race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That leaves a whole lot of loopholes. And the Northern men who, in Congress, who write the text of that 15th Amendment, which is a intended to enfranchise African-Americans in the South after the Civil War, these are people who know that those loopholes exist and they know because they've watched them unfold in their own states in the period leading up to the Civil War. Like what loopholes? Loopholes like, okay, well, that means you can have a literacy test because that's race neutral. That's not discriminating on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. That's discriminating based on knowledge. And for example, Massachusetts and Connecticut had both passed literacy tests in the 1850s targeting immigrants. Let's say the Civil War ends and there are millions of freed African Americans now who need education. How many were able to get education at segregated schools or otherwise? This is when public schools come to the South. The Reconstruction era, that is the period following the Civil War, when Congress is essentially charged with rehabilitating, rebuilding, and remaking the South, in their minds, that requires bringing public schooling to the South. So there is no state admitted to the United States after the Civil War that does not have a provision to provide for public schools in their state constitution. And so in southern states like Mississippi and Louisiana and all these places where public schooling was basically non-existent before the Civil War, the Reconstruction governments controlled by Congress start demanding that it be instituted. And often African-Americans are at the vanguard of bringing it to the South, of taking advantage of it, whereas a lot of white Southerners are pretty hesitant to go to these schools because they are serving black children. And these are essentially the former planters or at least people who had grown up as white folks in a region where black people were always enslaved. And all of a sudden, the idea of Black people being free is, is a bridge too far for them. And then sharing an institution with them is just unimaginable. So black people are taking advantage of these public schools at much higher rates and are doing much more to make sure that they work. When did Jim Crow actually take effect? And when did literacy tests to block voting by black people in the South come into being? Yeah, this is something that I think people often don't realize, but the Civil War ends in 1865. Reconstruction nominally ends in around 1877. But the Jim Crow regime as we think of it, that is segregated schools, like legally segregated schools, the ballot being taken away from black Americans in very targeted ways does not really come around until 30 years later, 1890s or so. And it's because there is a short but important period when Towards the end of it, 1870s and the 1880s, there are movements in some states, including the readjuster movement, uh, as it's known in Virginia, where working class white Americans and black Americans are joining together politically. And that scares a lot of 
white Southerners who want to see white supremacy reinstituted. And that is when they start trying to crack down on black access to public life and to civic institutions. So was there a period right after the Civil War and before the 1900s, let's say, where many African-Americans were voting and voting freely? Yes, there were. I mean, the period of the greatest African-American influence on American political life before the very recent past was the 1860s and 70s when the U.S. Army is still occupying the South and therefore enforcing the 14th and 15th Amendment that allow African-Americans to vote. And in a lot of these places, in the Deep South especially, African-Americans are a majority of their community. And so they can vote for their members of their community into public office. The first African-American senators and Congress people come from that period. And then there's even greater representation at the state levels. When did the education test, the literacy test, stop being part of the voting process in the South? Was there a period where it was no longer effective because everybody was passing it? Or did it have to be federally removed? It had to be federally removed because the, the pernicious thing about literacy tests and education tests is that they were just administered in a very, let's say, disparate fashion. That is to say, it wasn't very hard to pass if you were white because the questions you were being asked were not the same questions you were being asked if you were a black person trying to qualify for the vote. And so it became something that local officials could just use to keep black people from the polls and enfranchise even pretty illiterate white voters. Although there is a decent amount of disenfranchisement of poor white voters in the Jim Crow era using these methods. But it's not until the Voting Rights Act, really, of 1965 that these sorts of tests are, are really overturned, and it's a federal law that has to do it. So nowadays, education literacy tests are out, but voter IDs are required in some states. Do you think the ID requirements harken back to the literacy tests? What I think is that the way literacy tests worked was that they had a disproportionate and disparate impact on African-Americans, and that was not an accident, and that what we see nowadays is other types of restrictions on access to the ballot that are, again, facially race-neutral, but in practice have disparate impacts, and I don't think that's an accident. So, yes, I do see a pretty strong through line in how individuals and groups and political movements who want to restrict the vote go about doing it. That is, they come up with facially race-neutral ways to target based on race. Mark, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Thanks for having me. Mark Boonshoft is a history professor at Virginia Military Institute and the author of Aristocratic Education and the Making of the American Republic. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. During the Great Migration, millions of African Americans fled the Jim Crow South to cities in the North and West. Black immigrants from the Caribbean also were part of the Great Migration. Janira Teague is a history professor at Morehouse College and a former HBCU fellow at Virginia Humanities. She says the influx of African Americans and Caribbean immigrants to New York City created a vibrant fusion of Black ethnic diversity. During the late 1900s and early 20th century, the majority of African Americans lived in the South. And so the Great Migration is the movement of African Americans from the South to both the North and the West. There's also movement from rural to urban areas. And this movement's gonna take place between about 1910, when it starts with a bit of a trickle, it's going to pick up during the World War I era. And really, the Great Migration will end during the late 1960s, early 1970s. And the Southerners, when they're traveling to the North and to the West, they're taking their culture with them, their food, their music. So some people call this the Southernizing of America. And they're going to these major cities in the North and the West, um, such as Detroit, Chicago, New York City, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. How many people jammed into New York City from the American South 
because of the repressive Jim Crow laws and the situation in the South. The majority of Black people in New York City by the early like 1920s are going to be made up of people who relocated to New York City. But New York City is also going to be the city that receives the largest Black immigrant population to America during this time period. So New York City is really unique because it's going to have so many African-American Southerners as well as Black immigrants from um, throughout the world, really. Why were they leaving the South? Was it mostly jobs or was it lynchings and terrible racial violence and the, the fear that police would do nothing about it? It's actually all of that. Mainly three reasons. One, they're trying to avoid the Jim Crow South. Two, I would argue politics. And also the really big ones, the economy. A lot of Black people are sharecroppers and are tied to the land. Some people have even described it as another form of slavery. Also, the laws in the South to figure out ways to say, okay, well, if the 15th Amendment says we can't stop people from voting because of race, we'll just find other ways. So we'll stop Black people from voting because we'll say they can't afford the poll tax or you can only vote because your grandfather voted. And then there's just the extreme, brutal racism and discrimination that's felt in the Jim Crow South. So African-Americans are really trying to leave that environment, and they're going to hope and strive for better opportunities in the North and in the West. And once they got North, was it better? Did it work out? In some ways, people did actually end up making more money and earning a better living. But in the North, they might not have lynchings like there was in the South. But in the North, they had race riots. It's known as the Red Summer of 1919, where there's about 25 race riots in one summer. The race riots are often connected to tensions over Black people and white people competing for the same jobs. Also, some African-American soldiers actually fight during World War I, and they're returning home, and they're wanting and advocating for better treatment. And tensions roll over, and they turn into full-out riots. And during race riots, a lot of whites will enter the Black communities or Black areas of towns, destroying property, killings, beatings, and they can just be really horrific, often with loss of life or the greater trauma being caused toward African-Americans by whites. Going back to the Black immigrants from the Caribbean, which countries were they coming from, the ones that ended up in New York City, and how, how much of a population presence did they have? So the Black immigrants that are coming from the Caribbean, there's just hundreds of thousands. So it's a small movement, but it's a really important movement. It's actually the first wide-scale voluntary movement of Black immigrants to America during the post-emancipation era. And once Black immigrants get to the American North, they're going to have a profound impact. The majority of Black immigrants are coming from the British-speaking Caribbean. So people are coming from Jamaica and Barbados. Those are the two places with the largest population moving to New York City. But both Jamaica and Barbados are British Caribbean colonies during that time period. There's also going to be people that are going to migrate from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. So Marcus Garvey, who's going to come from Jamaica and be extremely influential in America, is going to argue for back-to-Africa movement, decolonization movements, movements of uh, having your own Black communities where you support Black-owned businesses and really support Black pride. And so Black immigrants, they're small numbers, but they're very powerful in Black radicalism in the Harlem Renaissance. And to some extent, they're going to have some influence in electoral politics as well. Did Black immigrants from the Caribbean and the African-Americans who'd arrived in New York City clash? Sometimes they did. One major reason that there's tension is that some Black immigrants are going to actually believe or say that they're going to have more privileges in America than actual African-American citizens. And Claude McKay, who actually arrives in America during this time period, he's a Jamaican-born poet that was really influential during the Harlem Renaissance. 
And Claude McKay tells this story about while he's in America, he's in, I believe he's in Pittsburgh, and he says he's arrested for dodging the draft. He's arrested with a lot of African-Americans. And so the judge, they're pleading their cases and the judge just handing down like three to five day sentences or something like that because they're dodging the draft. And Claude McKay says he speaks to the judge. The judge says, are you from Jamaica? Because the judge picks up on his accent. And oh. Claude McKay, <laughs> and Claude McKay says, yes, you know, I'm from Jamaica. I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially says, yes, I'm from Jamaica. And then he says the judge reprimands the arresting officer and lets him go off, you know, because black immigrants are just treated differently than African-American Southerners. And there's lots of stories of black immigrants maybe being in hotels the African-Americans couldn't go to because of segregation. But the black immigrants were allowed to be there because they weren't African-American. It's it's so interesting when you talk about some people choosing not to become naturalized Americans and that there are various reasons for it, but especially with black immigrants, right? Yeah. For some of the immigrants that arrive, their racial classification changes once they are in America. So for instance, Jamaicans make up the largest black ethnic group in America during this time period. And in Jamaica, their racial classification system differs, just simply differs from the racial classification system in America. So in Jamaica, they have categories of both black, white, and colors. And now colors in Jamaica is not with most African-Americans think. It's not this derogatory term for Black people. In the Jamaican racial classification system, it's simply a term for people who are mixed race, people of both European and African descent. And so that's a real racial classification. And in Jamaica, people live their lives as, as coloreds. Well, when those people, when colored Jamaicans, when they migrate or immigrate and they arrive in America, America doesn't have at that time period a mixed race classification. America sees you as if you have one drop of black blood, you're black. And so for some Jamaicans who were seen as colored in their country, they were not seen as black. They immigrate to America and America simply sees them as as black in this country. And that's a hard uh, realization. But for some people, their racial classification actually changes with their immigration to this country. When you were doing your research into this vibrant time in New York City, did you think also about your own families intertwining with this history? Yes, I did. Uh, my family actually is going to participate in the movement from Alabama to Youngstown, Ohio. So my grandparents, they're going to leave first um, rural area of Alabama, go to larger cities such as Birmingham and Montgomery, and then migrate from there and settle in Cleveland, Ohio and Youngstown, Ohio. And just like other migrants, take those jobs, manufacturing jobs that opened up to them. So my grandfather worked in the steel mills and that's the great migration story. A lot of people migrating from the South to get these types of jobs, whether it's in the steel mills in Pittsburgh and Youngstown and Cleveland or in the automaking industry in Detroit slaughterhouses in Chicago, but that's the story. It's people leaving the South for better work and, and finding that work in the North. Janira Teague is a history professor at Morehouse College. She was also an HBCU fellow at Virginia Humanities. Charles Chavis is my next guest. He's the vice chair of Maryland's Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission started in 2019, and as the first of its kind, its purpose is to uncover forgotten narratives and biographies of Maryland's lynching victims. Charles Chavis is a professor of conflict resolution and history at George Mason University. He's also the author of The Silent Shore, the lynching of Matthew Williams and the politics of racism in the free state. So based on the um, evidence um, that we've seen, some of our cases, they'd span from the 1850s all the way to the 1930s in terms of lynchings that meet the legal definition. I mean, that's around okay. 40 documented cases. In addition to the 40 cases that we have known about, last year we received 
an additional potential 40 cases of racially motivated homicides from the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project out of Northeastern Law School. They provided us with research and evidence of additional potential cases of racially motivated homicides between 1930 and 1970. Give me an example of one of these racially motivated murders that wasn't a lynching, but really deserves to be in that kind of category. Sure. The 1938 case of Frank Bishop, which took place in Snow Hill, Maryland, During the 1930s, 38 specifically, there was a scourge and attack on black laborers that took place throughout the U.S., but specifically in Maryland. And there was a legal Negro census that was taken, which identified all unemployed black residents. And those who were deemed to be unemployed were expelled from the city and or jailed in the midst of this Negro census and this corralling of all black unemployed members. A one by the name of Frank Bishop was executed in the town square by the chief of police. Did police try to disguise why this person was shot? No, they did not. In fact, there um, is, in the newspaper accounts, as well as in the investigative materials, the justification for the shooting was literally quoted by the police chief was that the young Negro, if you will, insulted him in front of others, and so he was justified as a result of that in this murder. That is documented in the press, um, as well as it's also documented in the investigation commissioned by NAACP Secretary Walter White. Were there parts of Maryland where racial violence was particularly pronounced? Yes, I would definitely say the most pronounced forms of racial terror that we've been um, documenting has been Maryland's Eastern Shore, and this is in many ways, we believe, the result of the racial dynamics and the history of the, associated with this region that stem back to the Civil War period, where you had a specific contingency known as Del Marva, which includes Delaware, Virginia, and Maryland, this um, band of coastal communities sided with the Confederacy politically, socially, and culturally. It is those sentiments that that some scholars have argued and some community leaders have argued has caused a lot of the cultural dynamics and the racial hierarchy to be maintained and have produced very volatile and violent experiences for um, Black communities. You know, the Eastern Shore is this strip of land that extends along the coast of Maryland, Delaware and Virginia, do you think its relative isolation contributed to a feeling that people could get away with this? Oh, definitely. When we think about the ways in which it was separated, it wasn't until the 60s that we had the Bay Bridge that was built and which was connecting the communities. Up until then, it was ferries was the only way to really get across. And so this isolation separated the Eastern Shore community, the Delmarva region from cities and municipalities and the major hubs of urban development and progress. And so a lot of historians, local historians and descendants talk about how the region was frozen in time. Your book is called The Silent Shore, The Lynching of Matthew Williams and the Politics of Racism in the Free State. Why do you call it The Silent Shore? So one of the things I sought out to do in this book is to salvage the humanity of the victims, specifically in this case, Matthew Williams. But in addition to that, I wanted to dispel the myth that prevails regarding cases of racially motivated terror lynchings in the U.S. that says that lynchings took place at the hands of persons unknown. That in terms of all cases, and even on in terms of like death certificates, Um, coroner's reports. Literally, you'll see throughout the U.S. in terms of the thousands of cases on these reports, the final conclusions regarding the deaths of lynching victims. Oftentimes, the quote is lifted from the pages of those reports in which states that the lynching took place at the hands of persons unknown. And so that's the myth that I sought out to dispel. And I did that after discovering records that have been hidden in Maryland State Archives, hidden in full view, for 90 years, 
when they literally document all of the individuals that were involved, including the state's attorney, local chief of police, fire department leaders, and out-of-state officials who were all directly involved in this lynching and in the state-sanctioned murder. Your book is about many things, but especially focuses on the lynching of Matthew Williams. Who was Matthew Williams? Matthew Williams was a 23-year-old, passionate child, kid. He was just ahead of his time. I mean, he had money in two bank accounts during the Great Depression. He oftentimes went to picture movies. He was a always, he's loved to attend a church, church with his friends. He worked as a helper for a lumber um, distributor. And so the lynching of Matthew Williams was not so much about his individual alleged crime. It was really a direct assault of the Black business district and community that had allowed him to rise from the ashes. Why was he thought to have killed his white boss at the factory? Well, it was, in fact, it was about discrepancies in, in his pay. And so Matthew Williams had, again, being financially stable, had been giving loans to the son of the factory owner. And after failing to receive his funds back from the son, who was a known gambler and drunkard in the community, he finally went to his father. And it was at that point that the um, story goes that the son, Elliot, turned the gun on Williams, his father. But Williams obviously would take the blame for that, that specific crime. And is it known who was in the mob who lynched and dragged and burned him? Yes. And so in my book, I include a list of all of the documented, corroborated states, officials, state officers who are identified by white members of the community as being the ring leaders for the mob and for also participating, including law enforcement officers in Delaware, as well as law enforcement officers in the city of Salisbury. But one of the things that was made the work that I was able to do so monumental was that over the course of my research, I discovered a journal of a Pinkerton detective agent that was hired by the governor and the attorney general to infiltrate the mob. And I discovered the journal of a Pinkerton agent who literally gets confessions from individuals who are directly involved. What was it like reaching out to the descendants? How did they react to you when you told them the grim story of what you'd uncovered? So I first, after failing a number of times to identify descendants of Matthew Williams, I um, was able to finally get a hold of Miss Jeannie Jones, who's actually her great-grandmother raised Matthew Williams, Miss Addie Black. I was able to get in touch with her through a relative in California, and I was not able to automatically get in touch with her, but shortly after, she called me back and was just shocked. She thought, in fact, that it was a modern-day lynching. We had just been dealing with the George Floyd situation and other acts of racial violence in regards to Black people in this country, and that was her biggest fear. We actually have a clip of Ms. Jones talking about what it was like learning she was related to this lynching victim, Matthew Williams. And this is from the PBS News report. I felt like I just got a black eye. I said, why isn't this written somewhere to such a heinous crime happen? You know, and, and, and where's the accountability for it? I know you've heard that many times, but your thoughts on that? I think her, Ms. Jones's concluding statements about making sure that this truth is out here um, is so essential. And we have to make sure that all stories are being told in regards to the Black experience in the U.S. and in this country. And local communities need to understand their specific roles and stories of local, not only victims, but also heroes who stood on the right side of history regarding these tragic events. And so that's something that um, I'm encouraged and inspired by Ms. Jones in terms of a call to action that she continuously reminds me to make sure that we're pushing 
to salvage these narratives and to get the truth out there at every level. One of the tasks of the Maryland Commission is to come up with remedies or redress the wrongdoings related to the lynchings. What kind of remedies are on the table? We've been able to make direct correlations between the racial terror lynchings that we've documented and direct targeting of Black communities, Black business districts. We are working with local municipalities as well as descendants to determine what repair looks like. But from a very basic standpoint, services regarding mental health and public health have served as really a foundation for the work of the commission in terms of the basic forms of repair that we believe are warranted and should be from day one a part of whatever repair takes place, providing public health resources for descendant communities as well as additional psychosocial support and resources to combat and deal with the historical trauma that communities continue to grapple with and suffer with today. Charles Chavis, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Charles Chavis is a professor of conflict resolution and history at George Mason University and the author of The Silent Shore, The Lynching of Matthew Williams, and The Politics of Racism in the Free State. He's also vice chair of Maryland's Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. The Virginia Festival of the Book presents Finding the Light, an evening with best-selling authors, including Honoré Fanon Jeffers, on March 24th in Charlottesville. For more great book events, visit vabook.org. The With Good Reason production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. To comment or for the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.